right, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. So glad you're here. Hey, listen, we are uh, diving in today into another uh, second conversation around the grace of God. Today, uh, I, I'm excited to continue uh, this grace series um, as we com- continue to kind of unveil the, the beauty and the wonder of Christ and Christ in us. And the truth is that if you're new to this whole conversation, honestly, strap up and get ready. We're going to delve into some stuff that's going to be super practical, but we're going to go down deep this morning. But again, I want to encourage you to come along the journey because the truth is, is that this is one of the most scandalous messages uh, that I could possibly tell you. It's so good. Did you know that the Bible declares, as we covered last week, there's two ways you can get right with God. You can either achieve it on account of what you do or receive it on account of what Christ has done. That's basically in summary of what we talked about. So today, I want to further discuss this idea of getting right with God. I want to go into the nuances of what convinces us that we need to live and ultimately adhere to what we would call the Ten Commandments to be deemed acceptable before God. So first and foremost, I think it's imperative that I establish something here today, that we here at my church, I'm all for the Ten Commandments, but I am only for them for the purpose in which God gave them. I am for the Ten Commandments, but only for the purpose in which God intended it. Let's go and look at who the law was actually designed and intended in the heart of God for, shall we? 1 Timothy 1.9. Paul is writing his protege in the faith, his, his son in the faith. Paul writes Timothy and he says, Actually, the law was not established for righteous people. The law was not established for righteous people. Now, you and I, if, you, if you've been around church any length of time, you know that 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the Bible says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. On account of Christ on the cross, we have become perfected, according to Hebrews 10, forever on account of that sacrifice, and have been declared in the eyes of God completely and utterly righteous. A righteousness is not something that has been imputed to us, in other words, credited to our lives. It is something that has been imparted. I am righteous on account of Christ. And therefore, any law that's been established is not for me because the law, Paul says, was not established for righteous people. But it says it was established to bring conviction of sin to the unrighteous. And who are unrighteous people? But people that are outside of Christ. That would be unbelievers. And so point number one, the law is not for believers, nor was it ever intended in the heart of God to be for a believer, a Christian, a Christ follower who has put their faith in him. The law is for unbelievers. Look at this. It says further in in 1 Timothy 1.9, it says, the law was established to bring the revelation of sin to the evildoers and rebellious people of the world, the sinners who were without God. This, these are the ones whom the law is for. See, that's why I am for the law, for the purpose in which God gave the law. Because 1 Timothy 1, 8, just a, just, a, just a verse before verse 9. I, I mean, 8 comes before 9. It says, we know that the moral co- code, Paul says, we know that the moral code of the law is beautiful when applied as God intended. Ah, do you see that? See, I'm all for the law for the purpose in which God intended the law. And so we know that the law, it's actually, as Paul said, beautiful when applied as God intended. Other translations say, uh, we know the law is good when used properly. 
And that only means that you can, it, the, that text is insinuating and implying that it can be, if it can use, be used properly, it can equally be used improperly. This is why I think it's imperative that we take, uh, you know, the words uh, of Paul himself when he was writing Timothy. He says, you know, uh, he says, see that you show yourself a workman approved by God, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you can rightly divide the word of God, you can equally wrongly divide the word of God. And I think that many of us have found ourselves a little bit confused and as a such, uh, finding ourselves, you know, twisting teachings to our own destruction and kind of our own spiritual kind of, whoop, you know, destruction um, because, well, we haven't really learned to divide the word of truth accordingly and appropriately and we, we've really used the law of God in a way in which God never intended it. So, Again, let's establish this 1 Timothy 1.8. We know that the moral code of the law, the Ten Commandments, it's beautiful. Only, however, when applied as God intended. It's beautiful. It's good when used properly. When used properly. So, if you, like me, have gone through many years and assumed that the law, man, I thought it was to show me how to live righteously, to show me like God's standard of getting right with him. So you got to live like that if you're going to live accepted by, by God. And so we do our best, you see, to live out to these 10 commandments so that God will look favorably upon us, so we can live acceptably before God. And yet, if that's what you have assumed, if that's how you thought, and that is what you thought the purpose and the place of the law was, well, then you wouldn't be the first to assume that. I mean, Adam and Eve did that in the beginning, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a picture of a type of the law. It was like a, a foreshadowing of the law that was to come later. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, its attributes were very similar to that of the law. Look at it. It says that Eve looked at the law, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sorry, and she said, man, it looks desirable. Its fruit is pleasing and it gives one wisdom. Isn't that true of the, the Ten Commandments? It's, I mean, the fruit of the law, it seems good. I mean, and it, it looks pleasing and it looks like it, it offers great wisdom to live after the, the law of God. And God had declared, said, but if you eat of this, you shall surely die. Well, did you know that when they ate of it, it brought a, a, de a death, spiritual death, in which it resulted in physical death and disease as a result? Well, the Bible says that the law, just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was equally designed to bring forth death. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 9, dis declare that the law of God, written and engraved on stones with the hand of God himself, when it was given to Moses, it was a ministry of death and condemnation. No doubt that when Moses gave the Ten Commandments, 3,000 people died at the foot of Mount Sinai on its judgment. I mean, duh, it is a ministry of death. But we thought it was to bring life, didn't we? We thought it was to show us how to live acceptable before God. But no, it is designed for one purpose, to minister death unto you and to show, condemn you and to curse you. To condemn you and to curse you. If you want to thought for that, um, Romans 3, 19 to 22, um, and equally Galatians 3, verse 10. It, those who observe the law, try to live after his teaching, have placed themselves under a curse. It is designed to condemn you and can curse you. The law is a, is a ministry of death and of condemnation. However, if you, if you believe, like I did, that it was designed to show you how to live a holy and acceptable life before God, well, even Paul the Apostle believed this too. Not only did Adam and Eve, they were deceived at the function of the law as well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in this case. They were deceived by the enemy too because they, just like the enemy, how did he lure Eve to eat the fruit of the law that was going to bring death? What, how did he deceive her? 
He says, you, 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 God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Do you see, what was, what was the thing he used to lure them into the, 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 the law? He lured them to the law saying that you could become more godlike. Godlikeness. Godliness. And isn't that the same reason that many of us think we need to live after the Ten Commandments? I want to become, it's, I want to become more godly. The, it's the pursuit of godliness, which the Bible declares, if you eat of it, you'll surely die. It's deception. It'll condemn you. And hey, even though it looks wise and pleasing to the eye, the Bible declares the same thing about the law. And Paul had to settle the same thing as well. Paul, he thought the Ten Commandments were to bring life too until he discovered that the law says thou shalt not covet, and then he discovered something altogether different. Look at Romans 7, verse 10. Paul says, and this very commandment, which was, I thought, intended to bring life, actually proved to bring death for me. Oh, see, if you, like me, went through many years of your life thinking the Ten Commandments, were, yeah, it's a good thing to live after them, and eh, wrong. The only reason that God gave the Ten Commandments was to help unbelievers be convicted of their sin so that they would ultimately be so inundated and convinced of their sin that they'd think to themselves, oh my gosh, I'm so sinful, I cannot save myself. And God would be like, yes, you got it. And then Christ would come in and go, hey, are you tired? Matthew 11, burnt out, worn out on religion? Come to me and I will give you rest. Show you the, walk with me, work with me. I'll show you the unforced rhythms of my grace. You see, that's where Christ comes in. But we'll, more to that in a moment. See, the point I'm trying to draw out is that we are for the purpose of the law for which God gave it and God intended it, but it wasn't to bring life. Paul says the very commandment which I thought was to bring life, it actually proved to bring death for me. Galatians 3.21, for if a system of law, this is a new verse, Galatians 3.21, Paul continues to the Galatian church. He says, if a system of law had been given which could impart life, because he, remember, that's what he thought it was there to do, then righteousness, that is right standing with God, would actually have, it could have been based on the law. We could have achieved it or could have received it on account of the law. In other words, achieved it on account of the law by living after it. But, he's, but he goes on to say, of course, though, we realize it couldn't. That's why Christ died. And so Paul, like you and I, you may have thought that the same Ten Commandments was showing you to have live acceptable before God. It could impart some form of life to you. And yet, no, it's not. First Timothy 1, 8, and the voice says, you and I know the law is good if it's used in the right way. I wonder if you're approaching the law in the right way. Well, let's understand the point I'm drawing out is that the purpose of the law is for unbelievers. It's pre-faith in Christ. And it's not for people who have come to faith in Christ because the whole point of the law is to show you that you're sinful and then you'd be convinced of that sin, convicted of that sin, so then stop trying to save yourself. You'd stop looking within, going, I can do it. And you go, oh my God, once you, the sin has taken root and you realize you can't save yourself, you'd stop looking within and start looking outside of yourself and going, well, if, uh, you know, who will save me, Romans 7, from this wicked, wretched sinner that I am? But, and then he says, but thanks be to God, in our Lord Jesus Christ, but thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he basically turns his eyes to Christ. See, that's where we turn our eyes to Jesus. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the law's audience. It is unbelievers, pre-faith, pre-faith. We know, verse Romans 3, 19 to 21, Romans 3, 19 to 21, we know that the Ten Commandments, uh, the, whatever the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Look how it says the exact same verse in the Passion Translation. Now, as we realize, we realize that everything the law says is addressed to those who are under its authority, the law's authority. 
So therefore, we can conclude this, that the law's audience are those who are under the law. But how many of you know, on account of Christ, we are no longer under law. The Bible says in Romans 6.14, for we are no longer under law, but under grace. We are under grace. So, the law speaks to those who are still under it. So that, now why does it speak to those who are under the law? So that the law speaks to those who are under the law, so that excuses of every mouth may be silenced from protesting. I'm not sinful. If you think you're not sinful, man, the law is going to show you that you are, and it's going to silence you and shut your mouth up from protesting that point. So the first point of the purpose of the law is to show every mouth, everybody will go, whoom, and get a hush will come over the crowd as you all realize, crap. He's guilty, he's guilty, I'm not. And then you're going to be like, oh, shoot, I'm guilty too. We're all guilty. And that, secondly, the whole world may be held accountable to God and subject to his judgment. Two purposes in which Romans 3, 19 to 21 give the law is to shut everybody's mouth up from thinking that they're not sinful when they truly are. It's going to silence everybody from boasting innocence in this case. And secondly, it's going to hold the whole world accountable to God and his judgment. For it says, verse 20, there is not a person alive that will be justified, that is, freed of guilt and declared righteous in the sight of God by trying to do the works of the Ten Commandments, or the law. For through the law, we became, again, conscious of sin, not righteousness, but sin. And the recognition of sin directs us toward repentance. Again, when you're convinced and convicted of that sin, you stop thinking that you can save yourselves, and you look for a Savior, okay? And, but notice this, it says this in, in, in the last point. It says, so the recognition of sin directs us toward repentance, but provides no remedy for sin. See, the law declares to you, it demands of you, be righteous, be, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. All the emphasis is on you. Thou shalt, like, you know, do, do, do. And Christ said, done, done, done. It is finished, right? So the law is designed to show forth your sinfulness. So what is the purpose of the law anyway? So why did God give it? Well, we know that, number one, it was shown to make sure that nobody has boasts their, in, in, in their, any form of innocence. We're all guilty and held accountable to God's judgment on account of the law. It'll make sure that every one of us are found, shown before God for what we really are, sinful. But the, the, those two points are working toward the greater point, which is to lead us to Christ. And that is the point that I want to draw your attention to now. So... Galatians 3, 19 to 24. Let's have a quick look at that. Galatians 3, 19 to 24. Now, I realize, man, for somebody tuning in today, this is going to seem like heavy stuff. I mean, we're delving down deep. But follow me, okay? This is so practical, it hurts. It's so life-changing. If you get this in you, man, I promise you it'll change your life. So Galatians 3, 19 to 24. Paul, he even addresses the question outright. He says, okay, why then the law? What was its purpose anyways? Why did God give it? Give it. It was added after the promise to Abraham. So Abraham, on account of putting his faith in God, God accounted it toward him. Because he believed God, he was accounted toward him. God's righteousness was accounted toward him. So this is very important. Abraham is declared right with God, a person, humanity. God establishes and cuts a covenant between God and imperfect man, and declares him righteous. Now, that covenant is cut. Nothing can change that. The law now comes in 430 years after humanity has a way of getting right with God apart from any law. Think about it. 
God brings in a law way after the fact that he's already told us, this is how you can get right with me, by faith. Now, I'm going to add something that many people thought, I get right with God by works. No, that, that, that doesn't change the promise, and this is what he's about to address. That law that was added does not change the original covenant in, in no way. As a matter of fact, it serves to draw out the purpose of that covenant even greater, and, and that's what I want to show you here. So it says, it was added, the law, after the promise of getting right with God was made to Abraham to reveal to people their guilt, to reveal their guilt because of their sins. Because from Abraham all the way to Moses, people didn't realize how sinful they were. And so they weren't looking to get right with God because they're thinking, I don't need to get right with God. I'm already right with God. Like, I'm good. I don't even realize how sinful I am. And so he wanted to show them, hey, you're not even aware of your sinfulness. This is why Paul says in Romans 7 that if I had not been if it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have recognized sin. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't even known sins ex existed. That's why Romans 7, I think it's verse 8 says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I mean, you're not even aware of sin when you're not under law. For I would not have known, for example, about coveting, that's a, one of the Ten Commandments, what belongs to another, and would not have, I would have had no sense of guilt if the law had not repeatedly said, you shall not covet. But on account of the fact that it did, sin then, finding an opportunity through the commandment, check this out, sin took advantage of the commandment, expressed itself, and produced in me every kind of coveting and selfish and evil desire. Whoa, there's several things to this point, but the main point I want to point out right now is simply this, is that had it not been for the law, Paul would not even have been made guilty of sin in his life. And this is exactly... The point I'm trying to establish here. Why then was the law given? It was added to show people their guilt because of their sin. That is to make people conscious of the sinfulness of sin. And the law was ordained through angels and delivered to Israel. Let's just skip forward. As by meteor Moses. Thank God for that. Therefore, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This is a question that Paul's going to pose in Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Meaning this, we understand that the law was established 430 years after God was already declaring himself right. Does that in any way work against us getting right with God on account of faith? D does it? No, certainly not, he says. Is that law contrary to the promises of God? In other words, getting right with God on, on account of faith the way Abraham did? No, he says. For if a system of law... If the law could have got us right with God, if a system of law had been given which could impart life, oh, there it is again, thinking you could impart life, then righteousness, right standing with God, would have surely come by means of the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everyone, everything, the entire world, everyone, given to those, or uh, uh, under sin, sorry. The scripture has imprisoned everything, everyone in the whole world under sin so that the inheritance, the blessing of salvation, getting right with God, which was promised through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. The law was given to show forth man's sinfulness and the sinfulness of sin itself to convince you and to convict you of that sin so that you would realize, shoot, I'm not as good as I thought I once was. I, I can't save myself. And you're going to feel completely defeated, completely de depleted. You're going to feel like you're struggling and straggling. Isn't that what many people say? Like the good I want to do, I do not do. The bad I don't want to do, I keep on doing it all. Well, this wretched sinner that I am, who will save me from this wretched sinner, th sinner that I am? 
Maybe you've experienced the Romans 7 experience, but Paul turns his eyes directly after that in Romans 7 and says, but thanks be the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, turn your eyes to Jesus, friend. When the law served its purpose, it's bringing you to the end of your self-righteousness, working your works-based righteousness. It brings you to the end of your ability to, to think that you can work out your work on your salvation by something you did or you didn't do. It convinces you that you're so utterly sinful that you cannot save yourself so that it prepares you for faith to come to faith in Christ. This is why the law is actually more of a guard than it is a guide. I know you thought it was a guide. You thought it's to show me, guide me to live acceptably and righteously, morally and holy before God. No, nothing can be further from the truth. It is not a guide. The Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus is your guide who will guide you into all truth to reveal everything that is God the Father to make it known to you. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the ministry of the law is completely different from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a guard. It guards you and convinces you that you need Christ until you, you're so sinful that you need a Savior. And when you see your need for a Savior, you put your faith in His right doing, in His obedience before God, not your own. And that's the point that faith is coming there where the law has served its entire purpose. So look at this. Is the law contrary to the promise? Getting right with God? No. But the scriptures can find everyone under sin so that the inheritance, getting right with God, which was promised through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Notice that. It says now before faith came, we were held under the law. I don't want you to read over those words. Now, before faith came, because that's the thing. The law is pre-faith. It's not faith moving forwards. No, 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 no. That's why Colossians 2.6 says, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. We don't walk with Christ and carry the law with us into a new relationship with Christ. Christ died to release us from law bloodied and hanging on a cross, how silly of us to believe that he would deliver us from the law to then come and take residence through the means of the Holy Spirit in our lives to then introduce us back to the law. That's a silly concept. He died to release you from that thing. So therefore, let it go. Let it go. Can't hold me back anymore. Now before faith came, before faith came, we were held under the law. See, law is designed for unbelievers, the unrighteous, to bring you to the need for faith in Christ. And the reason you, you exercise your faith in Jesus is because you realize I'm not going to put my faith in my own self, my own gifts, my own talents, my own convictions, and my own ability to do good works or morality or righteousness or holiness. I have no ability to save myself. So before faith came, the law kept us under custody under the law. In other words, under guard. That's another word for guard perpetually in prison in preparation for the faith that was destined to be revealed with the result that the law has become our tutor and our disciplinarian to bring us to Christ so that we may be justified, that is, declared free of guilt of sin and its penalty and placed in right standing with God by faith, not by works. See, the law is not of faith. Galatians 3.12 emphatically states this point, that the law is not of faith. It works. It produces human effort. It requires you to do something. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt. Who's the emphasis on? You shall not. You, you. you. The law is all about you and what you must do. 
Christ said, it is finished. It's all about what he has done. So it's not, the law is do, 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 and grace is done, done, done. It is finished. Praise God. So my point is simple. Once you come to faith in Jesus and convinced of your sin, convicted of that sin, and see your need for a savior of love and no longer a system of law, to guard you, but now a savior of love to guide you. Once you come to a relationship with Jesus and the person of Jesus through means of the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, you are no longer in need of any law. So in summary, the reason God gave the law was to convince us of our sinfulness so that we would understand we're sinful, realize we're under God's judgment because of this sin, and desperately in need of a savior. The law, it showed us we were in prison. It shows us we were slaves of sin. It provides us not a solution, but points out a problem and shows you that you're dirty and you need someone to wash you. So maybe you feel, though, like, ah, yeah, well, man, that's pretty good points, but I still feel like I got this, you know? Like, I feel like I can do it. Furthermore, Caleb, I mean, didn't Jesus say in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, as a matter of fact, if you want to quote it, because I know it, Matthew 5, 18, did Jesus not say, that not one letter of the law, like look at this, Matthew 5.18, I'll just go to it quick. Uh, 5.18, 5.18, where are you? Matthew 5.18 says this, For assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one little will, or one, not, or, or one tittle will by no, that's weird, never heard of tittle before. <laughs> For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven, I had to look at it closely, and like, did that say tittle? For assuredly I say to you, till heaven, man, I'm dying over here. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one little a title, or oh, is that title? No, tittle. Well, by no means, how do you spell title? That's with one T. So it's tittle. Okay, I gotta start over. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or, or stroke of the pen uh, or means uh, of the law shall pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Not one jot, not one stroke of the law shall by means pass away from the law. Nothing will pass away from the law until it is fulfilled. So many of you might argue saying, see, Caleb, the law is still in effect. Yes, it is in effect, but just not for me, not for you. It's in effect for those who are still in need of a savior. So the law, and on account of the law, just like Paul says in Romans 7, we declare that the, the, the law is holy and it's righteous and it's in fact good. Because, and we establish the law. On what grounds? To bring unbelievers to faith. But once I've come to faith, it's been fulfilled. And what count? Jesus has fulfilled the law. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Look at this. Romans 8, 3 and 4. I just want to cover this real quickly. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, and what could it not do? Provide me any form of righteousness. It demands, be righteous, be righteous. And yet, I'm like, okay. I, I'm trying, help me. And it goes, no, be righteous. It just beats you down, right? But the, so look at this. So what the law could not do, that is provide righteousness to any of us, in that it was weak. Now, is the law to be blamed for the fact that it couldn't provide righteousness? No, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Does the law responsible for sin in my life? Well, no, it's, look what it says. It says, the law could not, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, through people, on account of people. See, 
our sinful nature actually weakens the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good, and, it, and there's nothing wrong with it. But our sinful nature exploits the law, takes advantage of it, and uses that which is good for evil and produces in us every manner of a sinful na- or, uh, desire and sinful uh, desire. And so what the law could not do in that it was weak on account of human flesh, God, he did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Not guarded by the law, but guided by the spirit. You see what I'm saying? Christ, not one, not one letter of the law shall pass away, not in this life or the life to come, until it is fulfilled. And guess what? That is, the, that is the key point of that verse. Until it is fulfilled. Well, friend, Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf so that none of us have to fulfill. It's already been fulfilled. Therefore, I'm released from its requirement. And I'm now governed by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus no longer the spirit of law and death. See, I am now governed not by a system of love, but a savior of love. And maybe you are convinced that maybe I can still do it. And, and, for the, and, and I thought Christ could say, it would not one letter of the law will pass away, but yet we realize, oh, until it is fulfilled, and he has fulfilled it, not only in himself, now equally in us, who have put our faith in him. It is no longer Galatians 2.20, I and 21, I who live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who lives in me. So therefore, maybe you feel like you can do it, though. Maybe you feel like, man, I, I think I, the law is keepable. The law is not keepable, not by any stretch. If you realize the true teaching of the law, the spirit of the law, not just the letter of it, you recognize that it's an impossible standard. And this is exactly what Christ underscores when he comes in the Gospels teaching about the law. Many people have said to me, well, if Christ is not for the law, then why did he, did he teach the law and the Gospels? Two points around that. The reason that Christ taught the law and the Gospels is because he was born for, as, from a woman as one born under the law. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He came as one under the law to redeem those who were held, but that's the whole point that Jesus came. Jesus came to redeem you, to take you out from the jurisdiction, the governance of the law. You are no longer held by it. No, no, I don't get this now. I want you to really get this. He came teaching the law then as one under the law. He lived the righteous requirement of the law to the, the, the finute detail. When he prayed that Lazarus might come out of the grave, he covered his head with a prayer shawl and again did what the law required him to do. Let me just say it like this. So he was born of the law. He taught pure law at times. You think, well, the life, the, the, the teachings of Jesus weren't law. He came preaching us the New Testament and the New Covenant. And I understand where you might be coming from in that. You see, because many of us, we read our Bibles, and when the last book of the, of the Old Testament, Malachi, you turn the page, and what you'll see is the first page of the translation that we were given says, now welcome to Matthew chapter 1, the first gospel of the New Testament. And it says, the New Testament of, the Lord, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so maybe like you, you, you and I, maybe you've come to believe that Matthew 1 on is the beginning of the New Testament. Now, what is needed to be understood, however, is that a testament is simply a will. 
is simply a will. Many of you have written a will for your loved ones. Once you kick the can and go to be with Jesus, you're going to leave them an inheritance. And good for you. It is, uh, you know, it's a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is really the will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which he signed as the testator. Now, I want to show you something really interesting that the Bible says about a testament, a will. Check this out. For Hebrews 9, 16. For where there is a testament, a will, like the New Testament, okay? A new will. There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Oh, so what he's saying is in order for a will to come into effect, the guy who signed the will has to die for the inheritance to be left. You don't get it until then. That's why verse 17 goes on to say, for a testament, a will in this case, is in force only after men are dead. since so it has no power at all while the testator lives. So, Jesus, as born, one born under law, you could come to believe that all of his teachings, we should live after every one of his teachings. Everything that Jesus said, red letter ink, you better live up to the highest order. If that's the case, then why haven't you? You think, oh, I'm doing my best, I have. The Bible says if you even look at a woman lustfully with your eyes, you've already committed adultery with your, in your heart. <gasps> Shoot. That is an that is like, like that's not Moses. That's Moses 2.0. What is he's preaching pure law. And so what you know what he says to the person who's already committed adultery in their heart because they've looked at a woman lustfully with their eyes? He says, So you know what you should do? Guys, I want you to pluck out the eye that causes you to sin. Because truth be told, he says it would be better for you to go into heaven eyeless than to be thrown on account of your eyes into the lake of fire with all your limbs and all your eyes and yet lose life itself, forfeit life itself. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It'd be better again to be thrown in the lake of fire, or coming to heaven without your arms and your limbs, than to go to, you know, in the lake of fire with all your limbs preserved. The reality is many people go, man, he didn't really mean that. That's really intense. That's like, he's just trying to show that he really means business. He's Moses 2.0, elevating the standard of the law. That's exactly actually what Christ was there to do, elevate the standard of the law. But before I get to that, what he's trying to establish is not that you should do that. That would be silly. Next thing you know, come to church and all these people, not clap your hands all together. It's clap your stubs all together. You know, like, we're gonna, we'd be a stubless amputation ward. What are, we, are you kidding? That's not what Christ, he was just simply trying to elevate this because they lived after the letter of the law, but he wanted them to understand the spirit of the law, that it is not a keepable standard. It is absolutely impossible to live up to. When you heard, don't look at a woman less in your, in your heart because you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you heard Jesus say, hey, if you're angry with a brother in your heart, you've already, you've already murdered him in your heart. Holy cow. That's an impossible thing to live after. Who can do it? And that's exactly the point he's trying to make. And this is why you need to understand that the New Testament teachings didn't come into effect until the death of Jesus on the cross. Because a, a testament doesn't come into full force until the death of the testator. And the point he was trying to make to the religious crowd of that day was trying to say and underscore the point saying, you guys have boiled water down the spirit and the letter of God's law to something that you think is keepable. It is an impossible standard. And so Christ elevates it and everyone sucks there and goes, who can do that? And he goes, exactly, who can do that?
Nobody. That's why you need a savior. And if you're going to live after the spirit and the letter of the law, its purpose is to show you that you have no ability to save yourself and are in desperate need of a savior. So you'd stop looking at within, putting your faith in your own efforts, your own works, your gift set or your convictions and place them on and in Christ. Wow. So Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is put right with God. Look at this. He is put right with God, with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to say it again. Yet we know that a person is put right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ, never by doing what the law requires. We too have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be put right with God through our faith in Christ and not by doing what the law requires. For no one, zilch, nada, nobody will be put right with God by doing what the law requires. Look at Romans 3.20 in the Amplified. For no person will be declared right, justified, made righteous, acquitted, and judged acceptable in the sight of God by observing or living after the works prescribed by the law. For the real function of the law, the real function of the law, is to make men recognize and be conscious of sin. There it is again. Not mere perception, but an acquaintance within, an intimate knowledge of their sin, which works, will hopefully work toward repentance, steer you toward Christ, faith, and holy character. Wow, isn't there? There it is. So, what you've got to understand here this morning is that the law is really an all-or-nothing proposition. Many of you have boiled the law down to something you thought was keepable. Not even, no way, man. And this is where I'll, I'll draw your attention. Look at James chapter 2, verse 10. The law is an all-or-nothing proposition. You either do all of the law and lift after every single jot of that law to, the per, to perfection, like 10 out of 10, every day, all the, your whole life, or you're guilty of breaking all of the laws. If you even fail or stumble at one point, you think, what? That's crazy. It's impossible. I, this is the point. It's impossible. So James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point, has become guilty of breaking all of it. I like how the Good News translation, just real simple. Hey guys, whoever breaks one commandment, guilty of breaking them all. <laughs> Enough said. I wonder, have you ever broken in your entire life one of the commandments? Then it's not like you get, oh man, I'm doing so good, like, I like a five out of 10, I'm, I'm a good person. And so we measure we're a good person against what? against the holy requirements of God, the standards of God, which is the law. And you go, man, I'm a good person. I've done most of those. And so you might think, man, I got to pass because you're looking at like high school thing. If I get a 50%, I got to pass. No, no, no. It's not a five out of 10, a 50% or a 60 or a 70, 80, even a 95%. If you fail at just one point of this law, you're guilty of breaking them all. You failed. It's either pass or fail. It's a all or nothing proposition. That's impossible. Who can do that? And that is the point. See, Galatians 3.10. Listen. Whoever seeks to be righteous by following certain works of the law actually falls under the law's curse. When you try to live and obey the law and live after its works and rules, you actually place yourself, the Bible says, under a curse. I'm giving it to you straight, Paul says, from Scripture, because it is as true now as it was when it was written, Cursed is everyone who does not live by and do all that, th that is written in the law. Look at this. 
in the Good News Translation, whoever does not always obey everything that is written in the book of the law is under God's curse. In the book of the law in context there is the entire first five books of the Bible. It's the Pentateuch, the, the, the Torah. You can't fail at one point or you're guilty of all. That is an impossible standard. So stop trying to get right with God through a works-based righteousness, living after a Ten Commandments, doing righteous deeds to try to get right with God. You don't need to achieve your right standing. You simply need to receive right standing on account of Christ. So, we understand that the law is not capable of what's impossible. And furthermore, if you're trying to think that the law is going to show you how to live righteously and acceptable before God by living after them, saying, I need grace, yes, I've obtained right standing with God on account of Christ, but I thought I must maintain now that right standing, that righteousness by what I do. Well, that would be in a book of the Bible called Galatians, and that would be performing the sin of Galatianism by thinking that you must start your journey by faith and now continue it by works, by what you do. That No, the Colossians 2.6 says, so for as you've received Christ by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8 says that we've been saved by grace through faith, it is not of works so that no man should boast. We were saved by grace through faith. And the Bible says in Colossians 2, 6, as you have received him, so now walk out the rest of your days. How did I receive him? By grace through faith. So how am I to live the Christian life? By grace every single day, every single moment, every single minute of the day, by grace through faith. We don't go from grace now back to, to works. That's silly. Furthermore, the Bible it declares that the law, Galatians 3.12, the law is not of faith. The law puts your emphasis on you, not God. Requires no faith in anyone but myself. And so the law is not of faith, but yet the Bible declares in Romans 1.16 and 17 that those who are justified and declared right with God are those who live by faith. So I can't live by the law and be declared right with God by faith because the law is not of faith. I mean, it's silly. So, the point I want to draw out then is to really put down this idea that we need to live after the law as a Christian. The law is pre-Christian, pre-faith as we've established. And furthermore, if you think that you need grace, obtain grace, now I must live by law by what I do. I, I obtained right standing on account of Christ, now I must maintain that right standing by what I do. I need grace, but now I need works. You are dead wrong. The law actually arouses and stirs up sin in your life. Look at Romans 7 verse 5. For when we lived, Paul said, according to our human nature, our human flesh, the sinful desires, that's something we don't want, the sinful desires stirred up by the law were at work in our bodies. Wait, what? The sinful desires were aroused, stirred up by the law. The law, you see, actually, it actually, our sinful nature exploits the law and the goodness of the law, and it actually only arouses sin. So the law was given so that, Romans 5.20, I believe it is, the law was given so that sin might increase. Well, that's why it increases, because the law arouses sin. Is the law a minister of sin? No, it's not. Remember, it's not the law's fault that sin is getting aroused. It's the sinful nature of humanity that's at fault here. The weakness of the law, Hebrews 8, uh, verse uh, 8, I think it is, or 7 or 8, it says, was not found with the law itself, but with us, the flesh, people. But the point is simple. 
is that it arouses sin. And so the law was given so that it might increase sin, but grace superabounds, he says in Romans 5.20. But the point is simply this, the law stirs up sin. So we say, if you say you must, you need Jesus, but now you need to live by works of the law and leave the, you're saying I need grace, but I, so I can go on sinning. That's how you go on sinning. Many people think, well, if I got grace and no longer under law, what's gonna keep me from sinning? <laughs> That's the irony of that statement, isn't it? We think, if I don't have the law to show me how to, to buffer my sin, how will I know how to live right? And yet you've wrongly assumed that the law was designed to buffer you and sinful passions in your life. The law doesn't buffer them. It stirs and arouses them. Look at Romans 7, 7 8. But sin, it takes advantage, opportunity by the commandment, and produces in you and I, in me, he says, all manner of evil desire. All manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, if it weren't for the law, sin would be dead. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I want to show you something further than that. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 underscores the same point. It is sin that gives death its sting and the law that gives sin its power, its strength. It is the law that gives sin its power power and strength. Friend, what I'm trying to convince you of is that you do not need to obtain grace by sinning and now maintain it by what you do. If you go to the law and think that that's how we need to maintain our righteousness with God, you've completely missed the point of the law. Again, I am for the law for which the purpose in which God intended it or gave it, and that is not the purpose. It is designed to be pre-faith, to bring you to faith. Once you, It's there to guard you, and once you've come to faith, and now the Holy Spirit guides you. The law is there to guard, not guide. It is there to guard you and prepare you for faith. And once that faith has been revealed in Christ, you have now the person of the Holy Spirit himself who guides you and leads you into all truth. The law does not buffer sin. It actually is responsible for stirring it up. I'll point that out even further. For sin, the Romans 6.14, shall not have dominion over you. It shall not be your master. Why? Because you are not under law, but under grace. What is it implying? That if I'm under law, sin will master me. But because I'm under grace, sin has no more power or strength anymore. It is dead. That is the key to a holiness revival. So we do not need, according to the scripture, we do not need Jesus, grace, and law. Jesus and the giver of law, Moses. And the point I'll end on this is simply, um, for Christ, it says, Romans 10, 4, is the end of the law for righteousness. We don't need to go after righteousness through the means of the law. Christ provides it for us. The law is not of faith. Christ is, has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. So, hear me now. Matthew 17, and we'll end here. Matthew 17 says that Jesus grabbed his, you know, this when he was living under the law, he grabbed his three disciples, his Peter, James, and John, up the mountain with him. And he goes up the mountain, and all of a sudden, he's transfigured in their sight. They get to the, the, the ascent, they ascend to the top of this mountain. All of a sudden, a great cloud like, comes down over the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. His whole body and garments are made sparkling white, it says. It even makes mention there, like the kind of white radiance that is, there's no garment as white as this on the planet Earth. And it says that he's basically transfigured like Mr. Clean, like ding, it's like a perfect, like whoa. And it says when this moment, Moses and Elijah come and begin, they, they just appear and begin talking with Jesus. Now, the situation itself could seem strange if you don't understand what we've been talking about. But in reality, this is a very purposeful, this is a very power-packed moment that needs to be understood. 
Elijah and Moses. Moses, the giver of the first five books of the Bible, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. What is the entire Old Covenant, the 39 books of the Old Testament, what are they made up of? The law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. It's re so the, Moses and Elijah represent the old teachings, the covenant, the old covenant in the Bible. Meeting now and mingling with that, the one who's here to usher in the new covenant, a, according to Romans 7, verses 1 to 5, a new and a living way of approaching God. That was one way through the law and the prophets of approaching God. Here's a new way through Christ who's going to usher in the new covenant, not according to the old covenant. The old is becoming obsolete, according to Hebrews 8 to 10. Um, it's growing obsolete and it's now vanishing away. This is a new covenant. So this is exactly what happens. Peter, James, and John are sitting there and completely awestruck, watching Christ, who's now been transfigured. They're seeing him in his glorified heavenly state, and their mind is blown. They're terrified. But Peter, in a moment of boldness and brazen boldness, jumps up, and he says, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, this is good that we're all together. Let us make three tabernacles, three tents that we may dwell, to, and he's about to say together, but no sooner could he get those words of trying to attempt to bring the law and the prophets together with Christ. Does God the Father out of the cloud interrupt? He interjects Peter. He just, boom, walks. It's a cutting of the toes moment. He interrupts and interjects and he says, hey, this is my son. He says, um, where is it here? I'm just going to read it. I think it's, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, Moses and Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And an exclamation, God yelled this, hear him. Emphasis added, hear him. What? What do you mean? I, I, we need to hear from Moses and, and Elijah, and let's keep them all together, grace and law. And God says, no. He, this idea of keeping them, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is not a servant of the house. This is the son of the house. Jesus in Hebrews is not a servant. He's a son. Moses was a servant, but Jesus was a son. He is superior over the, the priesthood, the prophets, the law, all of it. He's superior. And so he's not in the same playing field here. And so God says to Peter, who attempts, like many of us, to try to keep it all together, let's, let's house them in the same place. And he says, no, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And the, no sinner does God say that. But Moses and Elijah fade away into glory, and they disappear. Well, it says, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces. They were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise, and do not be afraid. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Can I say that again? But when they arose, they lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded, saying, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. I want to point something out to you in this scripture. They saw no one but Jesus only. This is the idea. God wants you to be led by Jesus only. It's not Jesus with a little bit of law. If you even introduce a little bit of law, 
You've lost Christ entirely. Galatians 5.4, you who attempt to be justified by law, you've been cut off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You don't fall from grace by sinning, by the way, by missing it here and there. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. And the only reason and the only context in which that verse is applied and even appropriate is in the context of screwing up. If I didn't ever screw it up, why would there be no condemnation? Put it together now. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You don't fall from grace by screwing up here and there. You fall from grace by turning back to a law, a system of law. And in essence, when you turn back to a law and go, I think I can do it by my works, you reject the finished work of Christ. You insult the spirit of grace and you lose. You've been cut off from Christ. So my point is simply this. They saw Jesus only because it's not Jesus plus a little bit of law. No, even a pinch of law and you've lost the whole thing. My point is simple, that Jesus wants to lead you and love you into the fullness of life itself. Interesting, the last thing I'll end on was the, the fact that he brought up with him Peter, James, and John. John, his name means Yohanan. It means the, the, the grace of the Father. James, his name means to replace or to supplant something. And Peter, whose name means stone, according to Galatians, or 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, that written and engraved on stones, tablets of stone, was the handwriting, the letter of the law written, right? According to Moses, God, with his own hand, wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets of stone. So, stone, it's a picture of law. So in this moment, you've got the law and the prophets that disappear, hear him, and they saw Jesus only. All you need is Jesus. And isn't it interesting that even the people that Jesus brought up the mountain with him underscore this very message that God's grace, John, replaced James, the stone, the law, Peter. That God's grace, the grace of the Father, replaces the law. That we now are living and are led by the Spirit of God, the person of God himself, that we are no longer in need of a system of law when you've now got living on the inside of you a Savior of love who has fulfilled the law in you and has made you right with God. Somebody give God some praise. What incredible news. And so my hope is I set you free and that you lift your eyes and you see no one but Jesus only. Amen.